Welcome to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. I'm Ed Yaka, the Director of Communications and Public Policy. As of January 1st, 2023, Illinois becomes the first state to end the use of money bond by statute. This accomplishment is the result of years of advocacy from people across Illinois. Under a money bond system, whether someone spends time before trial, in jail or out, is based upon the ability to pay bail. This happens before someone is convicted of any crime. And that means that wealth is the determiner of who stays in jail and who is able to be free while they await trial. On this episode, we'll talk about how ending money bond in Illinois will work, why it is an important policy change and the impact it will have on people across the state. And we are pleased now to be joined by three experts on the Pretrial Fairness Act and the system. It now is changing. Eric Reinhardt is the state's attorney for Lake County. His office argues on behalf of that county as to whether or not someone should be kept in jail pretrial. Sharon Mitchell is the Cook County public defender whose office represents people being held pretrial when they are in bond hearings. And Ben Riddell is our Director of Criminal Justice Policy at the ACLU of Illinois. He focuses on these issues in Springfield. So welcome all of you to Talking Liberties. State's Attorney Reinhardt, I, I wanted to start because I think we often hear that phrase that someone has been bonded out or they've paid a bail. But I think a lot of people listening to this may not really know how that system Work. So I guess I just wonder if we could start off with a little bit of talking about how the bond system works prior to this change in the law. Thank you very much, Ed. So right now in 2022, or prior to the January 1st changes under the Safety Act, money was the main currency for freedom. Uh, individuals would have to post money in order to obtain their relief. A judge would set a monetary value, $50,000, and then an individual would have to post $5,000 cash to earn release. That money could come from a family member. It could come from a friend. It could come from a bond fund. A group of people may want to raise bond for somebody, but cash, access to money, was the primary way that individuals could obtain, I don't even like using the word earn because that sort of doesn't make sense either. Using cash was the way that an individual could obtain release from the jail. And whether or not somebody had access to money, what their tax returns were, what money they had in property or in a safe is not known to a judge. A judge is setting a monetary value based on the judge's opinion. And I guess I can get more to that maybe in another question, but based on the judge's opinion as to what is the right amount of money. And we know that that is an incredibly subjective determination. That system has been around for hundreds of years and is, in my opinion, not a good system. And public defender Mitchell, what sorts of harm are caused by having that reliance on money and on cash? And which is maybe another way of asking why people work so hard to end the money bond system in Illinois. I think there are a couple of perspectives there. I think first, when you have a system based upon wealth and access to wealth, your jail population is more reflective of the people that don't have money 
as opposed to a population of people that some authority has decided to quote unquote risky, right? So you've built kind of these jails where poverty is a tie that binds, not anything else. And I think when we drill it down and we talk to about an individual person, we know that the wealth that we are extracting out of folks has massive impact on folks' ability just to survive and live. When I worked as a line attorney, when I worked, you know, directly with individuals, you know, the hardest part of my job, there are lots of hard things being a public defender. One of the hardest things was having individual conversations with regular folks that have to make these terrible decisions about whether to pay bill X or put up that bond money. And we know that once somebody is in jail during the pendency of their case, typically based upon wealth and the status quo, they are far more likely to receive worse outcomes. So the outcomes that people receive aren't based, again, about the allegations or they allege to have done. It is about their standing in jail. And because they're in jail, because they can't afford to bond out, they're far more likely to serve a long, longer sentence and far more likely to plead guilty. When we're talking about wrongful convictions, we're talking about misconduct, it's really hard to separate that from the issue we have when it comes to wealth-based incarceration. Let me just ask both of you, do you worry that people actually do plead guilty simply because having spent so long in jail, waiting trial, not having bond, I think it's just a huge inducement for people to plead guilty, even if they aren't guilty? I think so. I think that's why we need a more equitable way to hold people prior to trial. Uh, it can't be because of that lack of resources, as Public Defender Mitchell so so eloquently put it. Can't be for that reason. We know that resources and wealth is not distributed fairly in our country. That it has a lot to do with racial disparities, hundreds of years of racism, economic racism, of classism. So we can't use money as the thing that determines who is in or out. And so people who are held wrongfully because they don't have access to resources, maybe even people who've been wrongfully arrested, may plead guilty to offenses that they did not commit. And that is one of the things that should never be happening in a fair justice system. And I think it's one of the things that these reforms seek to end. Yeah. You know, for me, fortunately, it's not a worry for me. It's a reality. The reality of the situation is that this legal system relies on pleas to work efficiently. And that's no one person's fault, right? And quite frankly, not one person can solve it. To get away from that world where you have an uncomfortable number of people pleading because they're in jail, we have to have long-standing, long-lasting, systematic changes to the way things work. And quite frankly, I think PFA is a part of what we'll need is a suite of reforms that can get us to a world where people aren't just pleading because they're inside, that they are were resolving issues based upon their examination of the evidence. So I'm really excited that this is one piece that gets us to outcomes that are a bit more fair and a bit more just. So that's a really good segue. I wanted to bring in my colleague, Ben Riddell. And Ben, you work on reforms within the criminal legal system here at the ACLU. And I wonder how you see the Pretrial Fairness Act or the PFA as a part of that overall reform. 
Thanks, Ed. Well, the pretrial system is really the the front door of the criminal legal system. And what happens when people walk through that front door impacts the entire trajectory of their case. As Sharon mentioned, if somebody is jailed while they're awaiting trial, they're much more likely to be convicted of that charge, maybe because they felt compelled to plead guilty just to get out of jail, even though they might feel they could beat the charge if they went to trial. They don't have the luxury to wait while their family suffers on the outside without them. The people who are convicted tend to get more harsh sentences. And also having been in jail makes it more likely that somebody is going to be arrested again in the future for some other crime. So we're destabilizing people. We're making crime more likely when we unnecessarily use pretrial incarceration. We're also really impacting the outcome of those cases. And once somebody's convicted of a crime, they have a felony conviction on their record, then that in and of itself makes it harder for them to work, harder to get housing, harder to get education, and is also destabilizing. All these things we know are not spread evenly across Illinois in how they're applied. They are concentrated in certain communities, namely low-income communities where black and brown people live. And those are the folks who overwhelmingly bear the brunt of these practices. And so the inequalities that exist in our society are further entrenched the more we operate a system that has these equities in it. So that's why reforms like the Pretrial Fairness Act are so important to try to chart a different course where we're seeking to unwind the inequality rather than doing things that make it worse. Around when we turn the calendar to 2023 and we move to a system that isn't reliant on cash in this way, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that system will work. Currently in a world before the Pretrial Fairness Act, where a judge essentially had three options. Uh, she could detain the person with certain limitations before trial. She could release the person. The person still had obligations to come to court and resolve their case, and the vast majority of people did. Or she could offer cash bond, which is a mix of the two. Essentially, the person's freedom is dependent upon them paying, which I think has been appropriately described by advocates and activists as, as a ransom, quite frankly. It's tough to get away from that. I think it's a pretty fair description. The new system kind of goes from three to two. A judge is going to make a decision very early on in the case, whether the person should be released or should be detained. And prosecutors will have the ability to basically identify or petition for individuals that they deem to be worthy of detention. Those prosecutors will kind of have one of three buckets. One is a public safety-based bucket. One is a willful flight from prosecution bucket. Another is that person has violated their terms of release. And we are moving away from a system that the decision is based upon money and that decisions happen often very quickly based on a very confusing statute to a decision-making process where you have fewer eligible cases, but you have more time and more clarity to make those tough decisions about what should happen. And again, the judge is making the decision, but it's based upon the prosecutor and defense having more time to really bring to the judge what issues should be considered as she's going to make this decision. How will this impact then people who are currently being held and who will be in county jail come January 1st? The new amendments do give a, a sort of timeline for this, and maybe Sharon can correct me if I get any of this wrong. This is a little bit more hot off the press. 
But basically, my understanding is that individuals who are held on cash bail, but the statute doesn't conceive of them as being detained, right? I mean, they are detained on January 1st, and they will remain detained on January 1st. They will then file a petition, and Public Defender Mitchell, I think it's within seven days, there has to be a hearing on those petitions. So those will be moving very quickly. The state even chooses to oppose them, which you know our office may not do, but other states' attorneys may have different policies or different decisions. But if an individual's in right now on cash, and they're Defense cannot be detained under the Safety Act, then defense attorneys will file a petition to release, essentially, and then there will be a hearing on those cases. Our office did select some individuals who we indicate would be detained because they could be detained under the Act for our violent and sex offenses, but uh, it's really a question of whether or not the, the, the amendments, I guess, sort of reverse that, and they put the onus on the defendant now to seek his or her release uh, because cash only is keeping them inside of the jail. So there won't be any big moment at 12.01 a.m. on January 1st. Rather, uh, individuals will have to seek their own release and, and obviously will have very, very strong arguments that they should be released if they are not on a detainable offense. So then I wonder from, you know, your office perspective as the state's attorney in Lake County, what other steps are you taking to kind of get ready for this? One thing we have to do because of the amount of misinformation that happened during election season is to just do some level setting with our law enforcement partners. I'm going to be having three trainings at least, maybe more, where I'm just sort of telling the police the correct information and also preparing them to essentially come out of COVID procedures where we were doing a lot of remote proceedings, for example, for bond hearings, what we still call bond hearings today. We are moving, at least in Lake County, towards in-person hearings, which I think is a good thing because it, it humanizes the individual who's been charged with a crime appropriately, and it really puts the attorney and the defendant in the same place to have a very real hearing about what the conditions should be for release. But some of this is just getting the law enforcement up to the level where, frankly, they should have been prior to the election, to be honest. But, you know, there was a lot of misinformation. That's one thing. And to connect all of these procedures towards sort of coming out of the pandemic and telling people we're going to be bringing everybody to the jail for these condition hearings. We are also obviously training our prosecutors to understand what can be detained and what can't be detained after they are brought to our jail. And so it's really a lot of training right now. It's a lot of level setting in terms of, of what it's going to be. And we're working with the judges and the public defender's office and the clerk's office to get all of these forms ready for January 1st. But at the same time, we are also selecting those individuals who we think cash shouldn't be an option for them at all. Uh, and that's one thing that, that we had already done even prior to these December 1st changes. So Sharon Mitchell from the Cook County Public Defender's Office, let me ask you the same question. How is your office getting ready to deal with this change well, listen, I think that sometimes this change doesn't get the respect it deserves, right? It's not just an ending of a certain practice. It's really rebuilding kind of the entire decision-making model when it comes to everyone that comes before a judge, really, on a felony case or a serious misdemeanor case. Part of our work has been around that training aspect, educating our attorneys around the new law and really trying to get them on board with these really significant changes. Other changes have been more structural. We've built an entirely new division. We've reorganized a couple of divisions and created an entirely new division that will focus on these initial appearance detention hearings, really moving from their first initial appearance to arraignment. We believe it's better service for our clients, but we also think it's important for us to create a level of expertise around this new law. 
So we are resigning a significant amount of attorneys to this division so they can specialize on this work. And not only are we kind of moving attorneys into this new division, we're also having some a couple of investigators and support staff follow because it's really important for us to be really prepared when it comes to these hearings. And sometimes that preparation is legal arguments and things we can get from our clients. But other times it may be an investigator very quickly having to go out and get information about someone's job or get information about the consequences of detention if the person were to be detained. So we are doing a lot of reorganization and we're also doing a lot of education. So Ben Riddell, when I hear this discussion, I hear the state's attorney's office saying what they're doing, the public defenders. What do we know about what courts around the state are doing to prepare and be ready for this changeover? What will it look like for them? I think like the current system, it'll look a little different wherever you are in the state. You know, we have 102 counties and the court system is not unified, not built in that hierarchical fashion that some states have. So there's currently some differences in practices around the state. But the court system led by the Illinois Supreme Court, even before the passage of this, had created a commission that set forth a bunch of recommendations, I think more than 50, of best practices for a pretrial system. And many of those form the basis of the Pretrial Fairness Act. But since the passage of the law, the Supreme Court Commission has formed subcommittees and formed a new task force to implement the law. And those subcommittees under that task force include all kinds of stakeholders from around the state, judges, prosecutors, public defenders, law enforcement, court administrators, and some impacted people and some advocates. And all of those folks have been discussing in great detail for many hours over many months the different aspects of this law and sort of troubleshooting where implementation challenges may arise, places where additional resources need to be allocated to make sure that folks in the system can meet their responsibilities under the new act. I think one thing that just came into law under some recent revisions to the law is new resources for public defenders, which I know is a subject, uh, while, while Sharon and his office are the largest and most professionalized public defender's office in this state, there are many counties in this state that don't even have their own public defender and, you know, that rely upon contractual attorneys to try to kind of fill that gap and give people representation. And that obviously is not ideal. And so the General Assembly has provided a grant program and a task force to kind of build out the public defender system in a more robust way around the state to make sure that these new provisions that should result in a fairer and more just system, that that's what they actually do. And we're going to be depending on people's court-appointed advocates to make sure their rights are vindicated. And I think that's one of the reasons why adding resources for public defenders is necessary. But yeah, I think all of the different stakeholders, the judges, the the prosecutors, the public defenders, and others have been working in those spaces, in those collaborative spaces, to really get ready for this as the implementation date comes up. And, you know, this law was passed two years in advance precisely to give the state time to do that work to make sure that we're ready on January 1st. So let me open up this question to any of you. One of the things that we've heard a lot about in this discussion is about a risk assessment tool or using risk assessment tools in order to determine whether or not someone should be detained. I wonder if you have thoughts about, number one, what should go into that tool? What kinds of things go into such advice? And then whether or not that's the only thing a judge ought to use in terms of making the determination. 
Well, I think it's important to note that the original pretrial fairness that set out the declaration, risk assessment tools cannot be used as the sole factor in making determinations about whether somebody's going to be in or out. I know that there are lots of different perspectives on risk assessments, but I think that we can all agree that we should be working in a minority report type world where risk assessments are making these really important decisions. I think we also can understand there needs to be some transparency when it comes to risk assessments. There are a couple major risk assessments that are used across the state, but nothing's stopping really individuals from obtaining their own risk assessments as long as they are, you know, quote unquote, that. Validated. So one other thing that the PFA does, it says that there are no more black boxes. If you're going to create a risk assessment, if you're going to use a risk assessment, then the information that you use and the processes that have been used have to be open to that defense attorney. And I think that's really, really, really important so that we are having these decisions made without having any knowledge about how one came to them. If I could just add to that a little bit, you know, there are different risk assessment tools that have different inputs, but basically these are algorithms. Data is plugged into these algorithms and they put out a score that is supposed to guide judges in determining the risk of somebody either being rearrested or failing to come back to court. The problem with some of the inputs to those tools is not all, but many are based on somebody's criminal history, past arrests, past convictions, things like that. But we know that criminal history is, again, it's not something that is just randomly distributed around the state. There are certain communities that are over-policed where the criminal legal system takes a heavier hand on the residents of those communities. And so the data that goes into risk assessment tools is reflective of that sort of bias, that disproportionality. And if we're not careful, what we get is a tool that ascribes greater risk to people because they live in an over-policed community. And we don't want to be enshrining racism into the tools that we're using in our courts. Risk assessment tools were originally developed to try to get away from that, to try and make these decisions more fair. But when biased data is baked into the tool, then it becomes all the more important that they be transparent and that they can be challenged. Another way to think about this is also that the legislature is also allowed to make its risk assessment and to make its moral decisions and to seek justice in the broadest way. And to some extent, what this act is about is gives nonviolent offenders a chance to follow all the conditions. It gives nonviolent offenders a chance to get it right and to not have their family life, their job life, their educational prospects disrupted because a judge puts down a cash value and then quickly says next case. It's really a, an amazing, and you know, you asked Public Defender Mitchell what he's doing to prepare for the act, and I loved how he sort of went to even, you know, bigger than I did, which was I sort of gave you a nuts and bolts answer, and he said, well, you know, this is a complete change, and it really is, and, and that's why I support this act, is because the legislature was saying, we don't think the harm that pretrial incarceration or over-incarceration causes is worth it on these nonviolent offenses when people should be given a chance to follow the rules. And that's why what I love about this act was it was really the legislature doing a risk assessment, really a morality assessment, really a, a fairness assessment to say, let's do better. Let's give people a chance to keep working, to keep getting educated, to keep parenting. 
before we just throw them into a jail, really on a nonviolent offense, without looking at the other impact uh, really in, in our communities. The story in the movie Minority Report has been invoked. And so I have to pick up on that because it seems to me that one of the things that's really hanging around this debate in some ways is the notion that once someone is arrested and detained, they're kind of guilty or they're guilty or they ought to have a higher burden to be able to be free. And I, I wonder what you all think of that and how it informs or has informed this whole discussion. Yeah, you know, it's something I think about a lot. We're in a political environment where the presumption of innocence is constantly being tested, right? And this is coming from a region that people with evidence have called the wrongful conviction capital of the country or the world. And there have been so many stories of folks who were accused of an offense where when it reached the light of day were found to not be liable for what they were accused of. And quite frankly, there are definitely lots of other folks that didn't have that attention, that took that conviction that, you know, for something that they did not do just in the night, right? And it just never got uncovered. I think one of the things that's important to note about this new law is that it makes distinctions about who's eligible for detention, but does not assign detention based upon someone's allegations. And while I believe that it is likely that people charged with serious offenses will likely be detained under this scheme, I think it's important and it may be uncomfortable politically to note that we're talking about eligibility and not just you're charged with something serious X, that means you're going to be detained. And this new system, I think, really gives both sides, the defense and prosecution, space to really tease out kind of what should happen. And there will be times, I think, that the defense will disagree. There will be times that the prosecution will disagree. But just know that we're moving from a system that just kind of laundered that decision to money. There's a person on this call that does a much better job of describing the market-based system that we had before. But I, I do think that we're taking a step in the right direction with this, but there still are those concerns. We still have a crisis in terms of coming to grips with innocence until proven guilty. And I don't want to overstate the case here that the PFA is going to solve. It yep. won't. There'll, there'll still be room for us as public defenders and, and the ACLU to really fight for the Constitution. This is a step forward. We have not won the war yet. Yeah, and just another another word about that. I think it's really important what public defender Mitchell points out that the presumption of innocence doesn't just apply to nonviolent type charges. The presumption of innocence applies to all charges. And in fact, one of the things that was rightly pointed out about the Pretrial Fairness Act is that people who might actually pose a threat to others um, if they were released will not be able to secure their release by paying a money bond. There have been people who have been surprised at, you know, the fact that they've assumed that the Pretrial Fairness Act might preserve money bond for the more serious charges. And in fact, some other states have even done that. When you think about that idea of buying your way out of jail, that really, it makes no sense that the charges that give us the most concern are ones that access to wealth is a pathway to release. You know, that really should, dis detention decision really needs to be made by a judge based on their assessment of risk. And that's the system that the Pretrial Fairness Act creates. But uh, Sharon is absolutely right. Some people who will continue to be detained in jail, and they're still entitled to a presumption of innocence, even though the court may have ordered them detained, and we shouldn't lose sight of that either.
There's also a great sorting mechanism here, which is that we will have defense attorneys and prosecutors and law enforcement and victim specialists focusing on these detention hearings, where, as Public Defender Mitchell has said, the decision was sort of laundered, right? The decision is sort of veiled by judges now because it's just about money. And I don't think they feel the moral pang uh, of making that binary decision. They put the case within the market. They say $75,000 and they sort of wash their hands and say, I don't know whether the guy has $7,500 or not. Next case. Instead, we're going to have this sorting mechanism where the prosecutor's office and only the prosecutor's office can file a detention petition that triggers this second step, this next hearing, where the lawyers get to get into it more. There's this period where we're going to be looking at evidence more. We'll be looking at body cameras and statements from uh, witnesses where we will have an, another chance to prevent a wrongful arrest, a wrongful incarceration. Obviously, from my side of it, the law enforcement side, we hope that never happens. But it's a really important plateau in this climbing of a mountain where we take a moment and say, do we really have the right individual? Of course, we hope and pray that we do, but even having that moment instead of an individual even charged with a violent crime who, of course, is presumed innocent and simply being thrown into the jail with a money bond uh, with a number on them, instead we have this next moment within 48 hours where we are evaluating the evidence and where the lawyers really can flesh out whether there really is a threat to the community and, frankly, whether we have the right individual. And, and that certainly wouldn't be a much solace to somebody who'd been held wrongfully for 48 hours, but that we don't really have that moment right now. Okay, one of you is going to accuse me of an unfair question, but I'm going to ask this anyway. What are the outcomes that you hope for in implementation, and how will we know if this new policy is successful? One of the mistakes I think that we've seen on across the entire country is trying to decide whether reforms worked or didn't work in let's say three to five to 10 days, right? So we're talking about wholesale changes to the criminal legal system. And there will be people, there'll be, I imagine op-eds and, and tweets and papers trying to decide whether this thing is successful in a matter of days. I think that what I will be looking at from my perspective is the quality of the decisions. I think there are lots of criticisms of the current system. The theft of money from communities that I come from is probably very high on my list. And But the quality of decisions, I think that's the greatest potential for improvement. So I'll be really looking at seeing, are we moving from a system where we're just checking boxes, where bond outcomes are determined just based upon a background, or are we making decisions that are, are more reasons? They won't be perfect. I'm a complainer. I'll have questions about certain decisions, but I'll be judging whether these decisions are made in a more appropriate manner, more fulsome manner. And I'll wait longer than a week to come to that decision. From the perspective of the ACLU and our, our partners in the Coalition to End Money Bond and the Illinois Network for Pretrial Justice, we see one of the essential goals of the Pretrial Fairness Act and one of the key metrics as to its success as to whether or not it reduces jail population. Part of the premise is that we're simply overusing pretrial incarceration. We're using it more than is necessary. We're using it to the extent that it's causing harm and actually uh, undermining public safety in our communities and contributing to inequality. And after the passage of the Pretrial Fairness Act leading up to the, the changes that were just made, you know, we did see some proposals that would have, in our estimation, 
tilted the scale too far in the direction of detention. And that could have actually resulted in a system that, that saw jail populations increase, which would have been antithetical to what we were all trying to accomplish in advocating for the Pretrial Fairness Act. And while the, the proof remains to be seen, we'll have to see how this rolls out. We think that, as State's Attorney Reinhardt said, that the General Assembly really did thoughtfully kind of strike a balance here, and that balance is not too far weighted toward detention to where we have to be really concerned that we're going to see jail populations increase as a result of this act, which, as I said, is the, the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. We'd also see it as a sign of non-success if we were to see the racial disparities that are already so pronounced in our jails get worse. We want to see those get better. And so that's that's another way that we can watch and see what happens as this is implemented and determine whether or not it's been successful. I was going to comment on the racial disparities. We see disparities being driven by these financial disparities. We see that in Lake County, the racial disparities really come down to the difference in, in access to money. And so one thing I'm watching very carefully, Lake County has done a lot with MacArthur Grant's Safety and Justice Challenge to really drill down on these disparities. So we have a lot of background data where we'll be able to compare post-January uh, 1st, 2023 to the past. But like Public Defender Mitchell, we know it's going to take time. But doing that data work early, and I know Cook County has done this too, doing that data work early prepares you to look at how these reforms have an impact. And, and one more piece, I think one of the biggest critiques of the system, along with the kind of milking of resources from communities that don't deserve it, is our current decision-making model forces people into pretrial incarceration, not because there's been a finding that that person should be there, but that's something short of that. I think that's what the coalition and network have been so great at identifying that we really need to be talking about systems that force people in incarceration and how can we move to a system where if somebody is going to be incarcerated, it reflects what we see in the Constitution, that it's really supposed to be a last resort, that it's supposed to be the exception to the rule. Pre-trial incarceration has risen 400-some percent since 1970s. It's gotten that way because we've moved far past putting people in jail because we've made that decision to just the system-producing results that feeds people into jail. And it's time to cut that, quite frankly, that highway to jail off. Well, that seems like a perfect note for us to sort of end on, not the least of which is, is that nobody called any of my questions unfair. Um, so that's always a victory for me. And I, I think Sorry, I would that last remiss. question was unfair. I think I would be remiss if I didn't congratulate you all on what is really an historic accomplishment that can't be understated. And I know that all three of you work to move this over the finish line. And so thank you so much for joining us today and for sitting down and talking about this. Thank you very much, Ed. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much to the ACLU and their supporters for calling for changes like this that are so important to the criminal legal system. Thank you. We would really like to thank Lake County State's Attorney Eric Reinhardt, Cook County Public Defender Sharon Mitchell, and our own colleague Ben Riddell. We really appreciate you joining us for this conversation today. If you want more information on the end of money bond in Illinois, visit our website at www.aclu-il.org slash money bond. Thank you for listening to Talking Liberties from the ACLU of Illinois. Kimberly Koziel is the producer of this podcast. Our executive director is Colleen Connell. You can listen to other episodes and rate this podcast 
wherever you get your content. Until next time, thanks for joining us.